Coming up on this week's episode of TechSnap, the theoretical Android flaw that's become reality, the simple phishing scam that struck major corporations, and why your pin has already been leaked. Plus some great questions, our answers, and a rockin' roundup. All that and much, much more on this week's episode of TechSnap. Hi, everyone, and welcome to TechSnap. This is episode 258 of Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly systems network and administration podcast. We stream this episode live on March 17th, 2016. This episode is brought to you by our three fine sponsors, Ting, DigitalOcean, and IX Systems. I'll tell you more about those great sponsors as this here show goes on. Oh, our live stream? Why, that's powered by the incredible Scale Engine over at ScaleEngine.com. You should go check that out. My name is Chris, and joining us every single week, yes, it really is him. It's our host, the admin, the tech, and the teacher, Mr. Alan Jude, even though he might sound a little funny. Hey, Alan. Hello, everybody. Thanks for watching. <laughs> Hello, Alan. I'm poking fun at Alan because on the uh, in the chat room before we started the show, about 45 minutes before we started the show, somebody thought Alan had replaced his microphone. Uh, he got a new mic or something like that. But no, he got a new cold while he was away. It's imported from Japan, right, Alan? Something like that. <laughs> How are you feeling? Are you okay? Are you up for doing a show? You're okay? Uh, not really, but <laughs> the show must go on. You soldier on. Well, you actually put together a pretty good show. And uh, why don't we start with Mr. Krebs on security, uh, who brings us our first story this week. Are you ready to just jump right in? Yep. All righty. So thieves fish money tree employee tax data. Well, everybody loves money tree. So surprise, surprise here. Uh, what's the details, Alan? Yeah, so uh, the payday lending for MoneyTree is the latest in a string of companies to alert their current and former employees that their tax data, which includes social security number, salary, uh, address, uh, and all your other tax information, was accidentally handed over directly to scam artists. Hmm. Uh, so the Seattle-based MoneyTree sent an email to all of its uh, current and former employees on March 4th stating that, quote, one of our team members fell victim to a phishing scam and revealed payroll information to an external source. Uh, so MoneyTree was apparently targeted by a scam in which the scammer impersonated the co-founder of the company and asked for an emailed copy of certain information about the company's payroll, including team members' name, home address, social security number, birth date, and all W-2 information. Yikes, Alan. Is uh, what the co-founder, Dennis Basford, wrote in an email to employees. <clears throat> Why that's even a reasonable request, I'm not sure, right? Uh, but, you know, it's happened to a whole bunch of companies now. Uh, and it's like, well, I understand you thought the request was from the CEO, but how is, oh, just email me everything about every employee. Doesn't seem like a thing that would happen very often, but. I say, uh, unfortunately, this request was not recognized as a scam, and the information about current and former team members who worked for US uh, worked in the US at MoneyTree in 2015 or were hired in early 2016 was disclosed. Uh, the good news is that our servers and security system were not breached and our millions of customer records were not affected. The bad news is mm. that all of our team members information has been compromised. Yeah, I'd say that's bad news. You know, as a customer, I guess it's better that they got all the employees and not me, but <laughs> Yeah, it is sort of a, a ironic twist on a, in a typical story where all the customers' data gets breached. But I wouldn't be surprised if this isn't maybe the more common scenario. It just doesn't get reported on as much because you right. know when you impact customers, you're impacting potentially tens of thousands of people. When you're impacting employees, 100 people or something like that. So it just doesn't get covered as much. Plus, there's no incentive yep. to make it public. 
Hmm. Yeah, it says uh, MoneyTree will join the growing list of companies disclosing to employees that they were duped by W-2 phishing scams. Uh, Krebs actually warned about this back in February because uh, he seems basically it sounds like it might be the same group doing it repeatedly. Like they're keep doing the CEO requesting W-2 forms as a phishing email and just sending it to lots of different places. <clears throat> Uh, earlier this month, uh, actually, Seagate, the hard drive company, uh, was hit by a similar scheme. Uh, and they said that the uh, scam had compromised the tax and personal data on thousands of current and past employees. Hmm. On March 1st, Seagate Technology learned that the 2015 W-2 tax form information for current and former U.S.-based employees yeah. was sent to an unauthorized third party in response to a phishing email scam. The information was sent by an employee who believed the phishing email was a legitimate internal company request. So it's very formulaic almost. It sounds like they're writing something. I, well, it sounds maybe like it's spear phishing a little bit in that I think they're customized to actually have like the CEO of your company's sure, name yeah. and so on. Yeah. It's not just like, oh, hi, I'm the CEO. Send me all the data. But Yeah, I, th- I guess that's a good way to put it. <clears throat> and, I, and it wouldn't take much to just learn that information. It would take, you know... Literally, a couple of minutes of Google searching to plug the right stuff into that thing. Huh. Seagate, again, uh, does it say how many employees? Uh, No. But if you look at his original post from February, it turns out Krebs found out about it from a company called uh, Nobefore, which is actually a security awareness training, like uh, an anti-phishing training company. Uh. And they almost fell for it, but uh, their newest, uh, their new chief financial officer... Uh, had was new and so had just gone through all their training and he smelled something fishy about it when it got forwarded to him to actually <laughs> good. respond. Good, good. That's a good instinct. Good. <laughs> well, it, yes, it's very good that the uh, anti-fishing company actually caught the scam <laughs> and didn't you think? Uh, I don't know. actually fall for the phishing scam because mm-hmm. that would make the anti-fishing company look pretty It's like when LifeLock gets hacked and uh, employees' identities get stolen. Yeah. Huh. So this seems like something that uh, would be particularly uh, likely to happen during this time of the year, right? So I'm surprised we haven't heard actually more of these when you think about well, that. Well, there's been a bunch already, but yeah. Yeah, there has. But this seems to be like a super common way. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I could legitimately I – would, I would – when I was working for my last employer, it would not have surprised me in the least to have gotten an email uh, asking for the information. I mean, this – this kind of stuff goes over email all the time in the workplace, even though it shouldn't. Yep. So this is a bad one, Alan. So you watch out over there at Scale Engine. Well, see, when we receive requests for W-2s and stuff, we laugh because <laughs> it's called in Canada. Oh, I see. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. That would be a particular... Like T-4s. Yeah, okay. Okay. <laughs> uh, W-2 information is highly prized by fraudsters involved in tax, fun, uh, tax refund fraud a multi-billion dollar problem in which thieves claim a large refund in a victim's name and ask for funds to be electronically deposited into an account that the crooks control. Which is interesting because that's not how it works in Canada. Like, you have to have your account associated with yourself, like, ahead of filing the tax return and stuff. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I guess in the U.S. you have several options where you want the money sent. Um, yes, like, well, actually, starting this year, you can't ask for a check to be mailed to you anymore. It has to be direct deposit. But, hmm. like, I don't know, it seems like there's slightly more security control upon changing which account it goes to. Yeah, it does seem like that should uh, be a, a fairly, uh, like, at the beginning of the tax process, maybe that should be locked in. 
or something like that. That makes like, sense. Now that'd be a problem if you move or something and get a different bank. But yeah, especially with the other thing stuff. is in Canada, we only have like five major banks. So even if you move, you would keep the same bank. Yeah. Huh. Uh, is it for better or worse? Most companies have uh, notified employees about the W two phishing this year. Are offering employees the predictable free credit monitoring, which of course is useless to prevent tax fraud and many other types of identity theft. Right? It only looks for credit fraud. Uh, but in a refreshing departure from that tired playbook, Money Tree says that it will be giving employees an extra fifty dollars on their next paycheck to cover the initial costs of placing a credit freeze uh, on their account. Well, and Krebs provides uh, links to his uh, credit monitoring versus credit freeze article, and is how I learned to stop worrying and embrace the security freeze. Right, article, which, which was covered. Before. Yes. Yep. Boy, geez, Alan, back in June. <laughs> yeah, it feels like it wasn't that long ago. That's that's pretty interesting. Yeah, he says, when something like this happens, the right thing to do is disclose what you know as soon as possible. Take care of the people affected, and learn what went wrong. To make good on that last point, we are ramping up our information security efforts company-wide because we never want to have to write an email like this one again. Yeah. That's from uh, Money Tree CEO. Yeah, who does? Jeez, that was just awful. Um, yeah. Really makes you think about just uh, what, I mean, what is connected to the internet and, and what's connected to the user's network and is there a link between the user's network, the servers, and out to the internet? And if there is, lock that down. Why, why was the HR, I don't know exactly, you know, uh, I don't know exactly how this works, but let's just say for sake of argument that uh, there wasn't an established protocol for this kind of information. Why, why didn't HR have a policy in place saying correspondence about information from us will be through this forum, this mechanism? And you just have to establish that up front, and then it would hopefully negate a lot of people falling for phishing attacks like this, right? And something maybe that would be secure and not over email would be ideal. There's a lot of different ways that if you just did something better to begin with and didn't rely on email, then your users wouldn't be susceptible to fall for stuff like this. That's, I don't know. Any other thoughts on that, Alan? <clears throat> uh, no, no, no. Do you guys up and now? I know this is going to sound like a dumb question, but before I before I before I ask it, I was out shopping today, and I at I asked several other of my fellow American shoppers this question, and they didn't know the answer. And I'm pretty sure it's yes. But do you guys celebrate St. Patrick's Day up in Canada? Is that a thing that you do? Well, I don't know. That celebrate is the right word, but yes. You okay? You uh, see, we kind of take it's a big deal down here. It's a, at least in my neck of the right. woods. Yeah. Also, happy St. Patrick's Day. Happy St. Patrick's Day. Thank Welcome you. back, by the way. Did you have a good trip? I did. Yeah. You just other than getting sick. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's very cool. And I, I saw there was some code committed while you were at the trip. I didn't actually catch because I was actually in the chat room and I saw your tweet go mm -hmm. by about. Oh, that was after I got home. But yeah. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. That's, that looks pretty so, exciting. Uh, the code that I did my presentation about, uh, I got approval and got that committed uh, after I got home. And which was what was it? Remind me. <clears throat> uh, allowing you to boot from a uh, fully encrypted disk without ah. needing an unencrypted partition to put your kernel and the bootloader on. Right. So this was code that went into the bootloader itself to enable that. Yes. Yeah, so it go, well, it goes in the boot code, which is before the bootloader. Oh, okay. So it's something so that installs. The code that actually, yeah. Well, it's the the bit of code that goes on the very front of your disk, uh -huh. but then loads the bootloader. How does it get there? How does which get where? The code get there. On the beginning of your disk? Yeah. It's put there by the installer or 
you can update it with the partitioning tool. So how so how the code that you the, 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 the is the installer also been updated as a part of this or not yet? But uh. that's what I will do this weekend. We'll wow. teach the installer to use it. That's super cool, Alan. Well, congratulations. Yep. That's really neat. Uh, all right. Well, let's take a moment and thank our first sponsor of the show this week, and that's the great folks over at Ting. Go to techsnap.ting.com to support this show and get $25 off your first Ting device, or if you have a Ting-compatible device, and you might, because they got GSM and CMA. Then they'll take $25 off your first month, or they'll give you a $25 credit. Average Ting line, after you pay for the flat $6, and then your usage is like but works out to be about 23 bucks a month. That's for a smartphone. With data, all the features you'd expect, everything. You just pay for what you use. It's $6 for the phone line, and you can have as many lines as you want. You want, you want one to be a MiFi. You want one to be a phone. You want one to be like a backup feature phone for a family member. All of that, $6 a month. It's really straightforward. They have fantastic customer service. If you, or really what's great for me, if anybody I've switched over to Ting needs help, I just have them call 1-855-TING-FTW, and they get taken care of. They have really good online tools to manage your account. Uh, really, I mean, I think, um, in my in my opinion, uh, I best in the business, and I've used all of the major carriers, and nobody's got tools that match things. I also, they have apps for the phones, for iOS and Android. Speaking of phones, they got like all of them, from just a GSM or CDMA SIM card to feature phones that are like 60, 70 bucks that have like week-long batteries and uh, like, you know, a VGA camera if you get like in an accident you need some proof. I mean, really basic phone that like just lasts for a week and just makes phone calls and does text messages. That's like 60 bucks, no contract. No early termination fee. You just pay for what you use. And then, of course, they go all the way up to the Macs, you know, the Nexuses, the S6s, the iPhones, all that stuff. They have the entire range, including some incredible value Android phones. They get updates from the Googs, and Ting doesn't get in the way of that. They don't have any, like, strategy tax where they need to prevent you from updating. In fact, when you get an unlocked phone to begin with that you own straight out, there's no, like, secret mission on Ting's part to get you to upgrade every couple of years. They don't have that incentive anymore. This, it's all restructured with the way Ting does business. Go check them out. Go to techsnap.ting.com. Also, while you're there, I found this to be kind of interesting. I just recently got a set-top box capable of doing 4K streaming, and it's like they freaking read my mind. On their blog right now, how to find 4K content online, which I thought was really cool because I, I was just trying to think, like, how am I going to get... Oh, actually, I actually have uh, that app, too. Very cool. So anyways, they have the devices and the apps. If you actually want to see if your connection, your connection can handle 4K video, they got a blog post on it. Start by going to techsnap.ting.com and then check them out, support the show, and try out their savings calculator, too. You might be impressed with just how much you'll save. Techsnap.ting.com. Stage fright's back, and uh, it's affecting a whole new slew of devices, if I understand correctly. Uh, I think it's the same device as, as original. So but. why is it back then? This is the part that's not... Can you explain what's going on? Because it seems like it's getting a whole new round of attention again. Why? So when Stage Fright originally came out, the conclusion was that it was too hard to exploit to actually be a big deal. Oh, so now maybe we've got some ways to exploit it. Got some... Well, yes. Security ah. researchers uh, from an Israeli company called Northbit have come up with a way to properly exploit this and remotely exploit it. So they basically come up with their own ex, uh, their own exploit for this, different than the original proof of concept, and it has you know it doesn't require special circumstances and everything to be you know going exactly the right way. 
And if, so this, uh, in their test here, they said they did it on a Nexus 5, but they've also successfully tested an LG G3, HTC One, and Samsung Galaxy S5. Wow, that's some of the most popular phones on the Android market right now. Yeah. Uh, and basically, it affects Android 2.2, 4.0, 5.0, 5.1, etc. Everything that's not 6, basically. Okay. <laughs> so, everything, uh, statistically speaking. <laughs> I don't know. My, my 6 is fine. Yes, yeah, because you have a Nexus 6. Yeah, that's updated, right? Yeah, yeah, it's uh, 601 updated with the March security update for this month and everything. That's nice. Uh, anyway, the, the new exploit, they've called it Metaphor, uh, and there's a giant PDF on it and a video of it actually exploiting a phone, and it shows the exploit running on a Nexus 5. Uh, they said they've also successfully tested on that list of devices you gave a minute ago. They said the stage fright vulnerability was uh, the first... It was originally highlighted by the security firm uh, Zimperm uh, in July of 2015. The hack was said to be able to execute remote code on Android devices and could possibly affect up to 95% of Android devices. In the last, you know, nine months, more people probably have Android 6 devices, but not that many, right? No. Uh, a second critical vulnerability uh, exploited issues in MP3 and MP4 files, which when opened uh, were claimed to be able to remotely execute malicious code. This was dubbed Stage Fright 2.0 back in October. Uh, the big difference there was I could send you uh, um, an MMS, which is basically a uh, text message with a video or audio attached, and just by opening it, you would get your phone owned. Hmm. So, Alan, uh, just looking uh, at the stats right now, according to the Google Play uh, stats, Marshmallow, which is 6.0, has... A 2.3% distribution of phones that check in. Really? Like, what the hell is everybody else running? 19% um, are on uh, 5.1. That's pretty good. 16% uh, are on 5.0. 34% are on 4.4. And then it drops off pretty quick. 4.3 drops off. 4.2, 11%. 4 .1, 8%. So there's actually, there's just as many people running 4.0 as there is 6.0. And actually, there's more people running Android Gingerbread than there are running Marshmallow. There's 2.6% on Gingerbread and only 2.3% on Marshmallow. And Gingerbread is 2? Gingerbread is 2.3. <laughs> so there's more people on Gingerbread well, they don't list than 2.3. I don't know how that applies, really. But uh, <laughs> the, the, the version numbers are annoying because, you know... Maybe 2.3 got the fix and 4.0 didn't or whatever. Who knows? Or maybe some OEM patched it even though it wasn't in main, uh, Android Upstream, right? So <laughs> Yeah. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's it's all kinds of weird with the... Yeah, that's bad. Like, I'd like to know, like, you know, I know some of these are, you know, people with old phones and so on, but I don't know. Just yeah, seems weird. I think it's that. I think there is a. I think phones, unlike computers, have a mentality. You know, they come from that hardware appliance era, and so there's just this expectation that it's just fixed in time. And when you get a phone, it's just it's always yeah, what it is. I don't know. I I thought I was unusual because I usually go like three years between switching phones. Yeah. And it seems like most people switch more often than that. But you know, I had a family member. I had a family member who had one of those big, huge, old analog phones. That the only reason she gave it up was because they shut off the analog network and forced all Verizon customers to switch to digital. She didn't right. want to give it up, and it was well into you know the feature phone era. So, yeah. Well, I, I, 
you know, with newer phones, the batteries don't last long enough to do that. <laughs> That's true. Well, the there there are some legitimate reasons, I suppose. And if you have it set up just the way you like. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, part of mine is I outright buy the phone. So they're. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. I, you know, part of mine is I give it to uh, other people in the company. <laughs> uh, uh, interestingly, uh, Android 5.0 and 5.1 have mm-hmm. ASLR, or address-based right. layout randomization, uh, which is supposed to make these exploits harder. However, uh, Android 5, uh, the researchers claim that the exploit, their exploit depicts a way to bypass the ASLR. So they managed to work around the ASLR. Well, uh, what's the point the of that? Well, it's that's kind of the problem with SLR is it's not perfect, right? It's just supposed to help mitigate it. it doesn't uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just interesting because I do actually specifically remember one of the bits of feedback we got when we covered this story originally, when we covered Stage Fright, one of the bits of feedback we directly got was ASLR would prevent this. So, well, Android 5.0 and above have had it, and uh, it's been defeated. You know, uh, And like how many Internet Explorer exploits we've seen that included some kind of ASLR bypass in order mm-hmm. to be exploited? Most all of them now. So... Now, while that doesn't necessarily tell the whole story that, oh, there's like these hundred exploits that never made it into the news because they were defeated by ASLR. But, you know, every exploit that successfully we do see has some way to defeat ASLR. Yeah. Yeah, it seems like it hasn't become that much of a challenge. Anyway, uh, the researchers say, we managed to exploit it uh, to make it work in the wild. Uh, Their research paper reads... Breaking SLR requires some information about the device, as different devices uh, use slightly different configurations, which may cause some offsets or predictable address locations. So they've, uh, in order to defeat SLR, they have to, you know, customize the exploit for each individual type of phone. Oh. Okay, that definitely, that would definitely, you know, what do you think, Alan, about the idea that Android is so fragmented that uh, it's like the opposite of the monoculture problem? It makes it harder. If you figure ASLR requires customization for each type of phone, that makes it sort of significantly harder to... Well, I guess if you figure there's only four or five really popular phones, it's not that hard, but... Well, in this case, it's more that the ASLR isn't random enough because it should be completely different for every device, not like every each person's phone, not each model of phone. It just means the ASLR isn't good enough. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> it's everything's supposed to be random. They're not supposed to be predictable addresses. Uh, but yeah, the researchers say uh, we would be surprised if multiple professional hacking groups and possibly governments do not already have working stage fright exploits by now. Right. Many device, devices out there are still vulnerable, uh, so they've not published their second part of the exploit in order to protect the Android ecosystem for now. But yeah, I'm just glad that my phone's a Nexus 6 that runs Android 6.0.1 with the March 2016 security update applied. Yeah, I was just talking to uh, Michael Dominic because uh, he's thinking about going back and getting an Android device here again. And he's like, which one should I get? And I said, I, I think it's not that that's not the question. If you follow the news and you're tech savvy, I, th- I think the question has to come down to which Nexus should you get in most cases. Um, maybe you could well, argue the OnePlus or something, but it seems like getting those <clears throat> updates directly from Google is just, it's priceless. Right, but what about the Nexus 5? Is They're not updating that one now? Sure, yeah, no, I'd say which Nexus do you get? That's the question. Do you get the right. 5? Do you get the 6P? Do you get the 5X? That's the question. I don't think it's, do but you get the LG or the... Are they not updating the 5 anymore? Yeah, they are. I don't know. Well, because they, they said this exploit was against the 5, but I guess maybe they just didn't install the update. Oh, good question. Know. Yeah, no, I think the Marshmallow's out for the 5. 
uh, Noah has my Nexus 5, so I don't know for sure. <clears throat> but, uh, yeah. Uh, well, it would be nice to see something, uh, you know, Apple kind of pushes their latest iOS on every device. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, when I had my old Nexus S and they pushed me to a newer one, they, got, they went up to the point where the OS expected better hardware than I had. Right, and yeah, it didn't is, scale well to the different hardware, and so it feels like that's more likely to happen in the mobile uh, hardware. Yeah, because as, as, the, as the devices get faster, is, yeah, they're just going to the point where the older devices won't be able to run the newer software, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and unless they make the OS more flexible, then you really don't want to update. And so they need a better release engineering strategy that involves releasing patches for multiple versions. Yeah. That's been like, a, yeah. Why why is there not monthly updates for five point one as well? Right, yeah. And everybody on five zero or five one gets updated and gets their monthly update. Yeah, they, they, yeah. I mean, that was how but they used to do it. Somebody in the chat room says they have a Nexus five running six zero one. Yeah, so that sounds great. right. Yeah, yeah. I think that I think boy, it kind of makes me want to pick up a Nexus five X and uh, and try out uh, six zero one. Hmm. I like my Nexus 6. I'm happy. Yeah. yeah it's just big, Alan. It's a big phone. It's real big. Uh, yeah, hey. I came up at dinner the other night. Somebody was like, what is that? Oh, it's your phone. Any other thoughts on this guy? Uh, nope. It's, uh, so, say, so interesting to watch a follow-up on Stage Fright. Stage Fright come back. Um, yeah. And uh, now, now you see it. It's like something we thought would be... Well, we thought ASLR and other things would mitigate it. It would be too hard to actually do in the wild. And here we are. You know what else is in the wild? iX Systems. Literally, they're out in the wild at conferences all the time. iXSystems.com slash techsnap. They're building the ultimate systems to power your open source workload. And to do that, they have incredible processors from Intel. Go check them out. Everything really is top of the line from their free NAS rigs that are great for a small business or a home office, all the way up to the incredible systems that they will engineer from the ground up for you with white glove support, burn-in testing, really good contacts in the industry. It's a company that's been around for a long time, and a company that knows how to work with the community and invest in the community. Alan, i got to imagine you must have bumped, bumped into somebody from iX Systems on your trip. Oh, yeah. There were like four of us. <laughs> I have, in fact, right here on the iX Systems blog right there. Look at that. An Asia BSDCon yep. 2016 recap. And who is it right there in the second picture? That looks like one that's of Mr. Uh, Allen's. Kirk McCusick, uh, Christoph Tronson, and... Uh, Alistair Crooks from the NetBSD project. And Alan Jude. Where? Right there. Uh, in the background there with the red shirt, that's uh, Ed Shouten. Yeah. And over my shoulder, is that? I can't tell. I think that's Baptiste, but maybe not. It looks, really, it looks like a bunch of great people. Yeah. There's uh, Mr. Dexter there. Look at that. And Chris and yeah. Drew. There's Drew. Yeah. Jo- and John Hickson from the Freenads team. There's Groff. There's Groff. <laughs> being uh, passed off to... Uh, Henning Brower from OpenBSD, who is taking care of him. Oh, good. Oh, that's good. Want to make sure Groff's taking So check out Groff's Twitter account. Uh, we, <laughs> we made a better effort this time to pick someone to be the goat keeper that would actually tweet from the goat's Twitter, Twitter account. So the goat's up to no good, as usual. <laughs> love it. I love it. Go check out iX Systems. See, this is what's great. Check out their blog, because I leaked a little bit about this a couple weeks ago when I, I got to right see now. one in their factory. But uh, scroll down a little bit. There it is, the bigger FreeNAS Mini. What? No, no, yes. Oh, yeah. Oh, geez, can I wait? 
I'm actually in the market right now. You have to wait until April. I think we're down to like I think we're down to like 30 gigs free, which is just a disaster. Just a disaster. Yeah. You know, it's it's what it's when you're working on big media files, and the free NAS Mini has just been a champion yeah. the entire time. But uh, if you want to fit, say, eight hard drives, they do. In your free NAS Mini, I do. The XL is coming. Only be like two more weeks. Oh, they should. Uh, systems call me. Call me. Let's talk. Yeah, because we are up to our gills in files here with the, uh, with the media storage. Whatever your workload is, iX Systems is going to build the great solu- a great solution for you. Check them out at ixsystems.com slash techsnappy. You can also grab their white paper to help grease the wheels up the chain if you need to convince others. I love it. ixsystems.com slash techsnap. Thanks, iX. So, you know, would 36 terabytes make a big enough dent in your problem? Yeah. Yeah, that would. That would be just about what I need. <laughs> yeah, well, you know. <laughs> if, if you did RAID Z2 of eight six-terabyte drives. So that would be... That would I, I'd take that if that was if that was if that was data with with parity, that that's double parity. I definitely would take that. I definitely could do that. All right, I Alan. Definitely see the the appeal to you to going to single parity, but you really want double parity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because as much as you need space, you need your files not to disappear. Are you ready for a little pin analysis? Sure. What do we have here? It's got an XKCD, XKCD comic or something that looks just like it. So I'm already on board, Alan. You've already won me over with this one. You know, I like this opening line. All credit card yeah. pin numbers in the world have been leaked. <laughs> that's that's actually, uh, when you think about it, very true. Um, from datagenetics.com. Uh-oh. I caught you during mid, uh, mid, uh, mid uh, type, didn't I? Mid chat. Mm-hmm. Sorry. So tell me about the uh, pin analysis, huh? Right. So uh, he was looking at, uh, it started as a joke email he got about, uh, an email that said every credit card PIN number in the world leaked, and it was just listed all the numbers. Yeah, yeah, right, of course. That was pretty funny. Zero, zero, but, zero, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> by combining a bunch of leaked password databases, he just grabbed all the common uh, four-digit passwords people had done <laughs> and then used that to kind of break down how do people pick what they're going to use for their password or for their PIN number. And uh, he's got a little frequency analysis here. Uh, people are notoriously bad at generating random passwords, and this article maybe scare a few of the people into being more careful. So uh, he found about 3.4 million uh, four-digit passwords, and every single one of the 10,000 combinations uh, was represented in the data set. But 26.8% of all the passwords were in the top 20 most common ones. Mm. Uh, you know, so if your password is 1234, you should be hit over the head with a mallet yeah seriously stop that and so if you're looking through that top 20 list is like yeah these are all obviously bad passwords and then he found the first one that wasn't obviously why it was bad was 2580 2580 when you look at the pin pad there now 2580 oh sure yeah that's right down the center yeah 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 that's no good yeah uh you know it's interesting because on a computer keyboard that's actually harder to type but. Yeah, yeah, that's actually when, I was, when, when you first said it, I was looking at the keyboard, and then, of course, they have a yep. picture there, and it's like, oh, well, right, yes, stupid. Yeah. Uh, another fascinating piece of trivia is that people seem to prefer uh, even numbers over odd numbers, so codes like 2468 are much more popular than 1357. Hmm. <clears throat> Statistically, one-third of all the PIN codes can be guessed uh, by trying just the 61 most common combinations. Oh, jeez. Uh 
Whereas normally you would have to drive fifty thousand to get or thirty three thousand to get that high. Or 3,300, anyway. You know, and I think yeah. about, uh, so for me, uh, the community I live in has a gate, and when you enter the PIN code, the gate opens, but there's 30 people in there, so that means there's 30 different PIN codes, and they're all four-digit PIN codes. Uh, yeah, how long does it, how, how many tries did you have to take to get one of those? And the thing is just a dumb little like, electronic box. It's not like it's going yep. to uh, make a, make me time out after 10 minutes or uh, 10 tries. It just lets you keep going until, you're, until the gate opens. It's just a little switch. Yeah, that's hmm. even worse thing there. But yeah, so they can get to uh, 50% coverage with only 426 guesses out of the 5,000 that it should take if everybody picked one randomly. Uh, interestingly, you looked at the least popular... And currently, the least popular pin is 8068. Yeah, so there you go, everybody. Start using 8068. <laughs> uh, star, star, warning, star, star. Now that we've learned that historically 8068 uh, was the least commonly used four-digit password, please don't go out and change yours to this. But Hackers can read this article, too, <laughs> and they'll be pr- uh, promoting 8068 up their attempt tree in order to catch people who read this or similar articles. Of course. And then it will not be the least popular. All right, don't. Chris was just joking. Yep. Just joking. Uh, but importantly, uh, many of the high-frequency PIN numbers can be interpreted as years, like sure. 1967 or 1956. Birthdays, Alan. Birthdays. And then the other ones are birthdays. So, yeah, you see here that uh, almost all of the year ones are in the top 10%, and uh, none of them are any lower than 20%. Mm-hmm. So the years are definitely being overused. But if you scroll down to the heat map. Oh, I love it. There's a heat map. Is this the heat map? No. Nope. No, that's just really cool. These are just the really good graphs. Oh, here's There's the heat the map. So the bottom corner is 0, 0, and the top right is 9999. Okay. Uh, the line kind of going vertically yeah. or like diagonally across yep. it. That's people whose pin code is four 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 or five 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 and things like that. Oh, <laughs> and that that line going up and down, mm-hmm. kind of mm-hmm. uh, just an inch in from the side. That's all the nineteen, the years, all the year ones. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then that bright spot in the first bottom corner, that is people. Uh, you notice that it goes about thirty-one blocks high. Yeah, and twelve blocks wide. Yeah, I'd say so. Hmm. I wonder, because it's people using their birthdays or birthdays of kids or whatever, Aww. right? So like months and days. And so you can actually see that the months that have 31 days have that slightly taller peak. And then the months that don't have a 31st day actually have a yes. are red instead you, of yellow. Wow. That is really something. So if you want a good pin code, maybe it's uh, take, you know... <laughs> A month and then pick, you know, put in a, a birth date that's not actually possible to ever exist. Right. <laughs> Who knows? Or maybe reverse your birthday. That's probably not yep. a good idea either. No, though, because uh, you can, if you scroll back down, you see how it, it's mostly standing up, but it, you can see that faintly it's sideways as well. Right here, yeah. Yeah, you can see people that did year yeah. and then month. <laughs> they, they, or, they tried uh, to mix it up, Alan. <laughs> month and then day instead of day and then month. Damn it, I'm not so clever. Yeah. These pin codes are hard. Yeah. <clears throat> and yeah, if you scroll down, he, he kind of analyzes the... Uh, Look at that. He really breaks it down, doesn't he? Yep. Huh. That one kind of looks like a middle finger. Yep. You know, I never... When you first put this in the show notes, I never would have thought you'd get this kind of fascinating data out of it. Mm-hmm. So here's the top... Below are the top 20 passwords for the various links. Huh. 
can't believe one. I mean, I can at the same time believe that one, two, three, four, five is the top, but that's pretty bad. Well, remember, his results are based on getting password dumps from websites, not necessarily the um, uh, actual pin data, but. Yeah. So uh, if you guys want to check it out, uh, datagenics.com, we'll have a link in the show notes. There's a lot of stuff in here. There is, uh, there is way more, too, than we've even covered in the show. Look at that thing. Since publishing this article, it's been brought to my attention that, of course, in addition to anniversary years, many people encapsulate dates in the format of uh, month, month, day, day, such as birthdays for pin codes, and that, which he illustrates here, yeah, like you were saying. Very good. And then it ends on an XKCD Comics, which you guys will have to go see. It starts and ends very appropriately with a comic. So check that out. We'll have a link in the show notes. Before we go any further, I want to mention DigitalOcean, our next sponsor here on the TechSnap program. Go over to DigitalOcean.com and learn a little bit more about them. They have rigs that run on Linux or FreeBSD, and you can deploy systems with entire application stacks in just mere moments. My favorite one at the moment, and it does change from time to time. I'll probably switch over to Ubuntu 16.04 once it chips. But right now... When I'm reading about different open source projects, uh, I've been finding that the perfect use for me and Docker isn't necessarily in production yet. I don't, I'm not a big fan of putting it in production yet, although there are a lot of people that are doing that. But for me, uh, I'll use it as like a way to demo software. I'll download a Docker container, and if it's something that, uh, for example, perfect example, something I wanted to share with Noah before last recently, um, I set it up on uh, an Ubuntu 14.04 base image with Docker, Nginx, and Postgres preloaded. Uh, you deploy that to the DigitalOcean droplet, and it's ready to go with the repos pointed at the official Docker repos because the Ubuntu 14.04 packages are too old, and they've, they've, they've imported the correct GPG key, so that way you know you're getting the right signed packages when you install them. And when you do updates, all the priority pinning is done correctly, and it is up, you're up and going in 20 seconds. And uh, I, I, at the time, there wasn't a how-to on how to do it, but uh, now there is. DigitalOcean has a bunch of really good guides, and now they have a how-to install and configure and deploy Rocket Chat uh, on Ubuntu 14.04. So use our promo code SNAPOcean. Go over there and try out a Rocket Chat instance for two months for free. Now, what is Rocket Chat? You've probably heard of Slack, and maybe you've heard of Mattermost. Uh, there are these collaboration tools that bring in a lot of things like uh, some components of Skype and IRC and wikis and all that stuff that people love to have when they're collaborating. Uh, and Slack charges like a ton of money for it, like eight, nine bucks a user uh, a month or something like that. You could go spin up a DigitalOcean droplet two months for free when you use our promo code SNAPOcean. So you set up the $5 rig which comes with 512 megabytes of RAM, a 20 gigabyte SSD, one CPU, and a terabyte of transfer. Plenty just to try something out. And the pricing is so simple that you could up that really easily. Go deploy uh, Rocket Chat in, in just seconds and try it out and see if it's something that actually does help improve your workflow or if it's hype. You could find out on your own and experiment with it right away. They've got all kinds of great systems uh, that uh, you can get up and running in seconds using their they're a really nice, straightforward dashboard, or you build it yourself from scratch. Uh, you can uh, get right on the HTML5 console, get console access, and just build it yourself. They got free BSD machines. They got Debian, Ubuntu, Fedora, CentOS. They have data centers in Amsterdam, San Francisco, Singapore, London, Germany, Toronto. It, uh, they really, it's just a great system with a fantastic interface. And if you use our promo code SNAPOcean, you get a $10 credit and you support this show. 
my infrastructure on demand. DigitalOcean.com. And a big thank you to DigitalOcean for sponsoring the TechSnap program. Alan, even though you were like even more sick yesterday, you still managed yep. to do a BSD Now, uh, which is pretty damn impressive, uh, the Tokyo debrief. So we've hinted at it in this week's episode of the TechSnap program, but I'm, I'm willing to bet it was a full rundown in episode 133 of the uh, we were both tired, and I was sick, so uh, <laughs> we didn't cover everything that happened at a conference, but we gave a good preview of it, and we had an awesome interview about packaging Kristen gets sick, did he? Uh, no, he's not sick, but, okay. you know, he's tired. Sure, <laughs> sure, yeah, yeah. Uh, but we had a great interview with Brad Davis from the FreeBSD project about the new uh, packaging base mm. system, which will be all kinds of amazing, uh, and lots of other cool news from stuff that happened at BeehiveCon, and... Yeah, it was a great episode. So new package base coming to uh, FreeBSD, huh? Yeah, so <clears throat> currently we, we have the, uh, our package tool that we use to get third-party software. But when you want to update the actual operating system, you use FreeBSD Update, which downloads binary diffs and so on. Uh, this will basically distribute the FreeBSD base operating system as a set of packages so that you'll be mm. able to opt out of installing base tools like SendMail. Uh, but also it'll make building jails and containers faster because you can just say, hey, grab this set of system packages and throw them in this directory. Cool. You can find out There'll all be a lot of cool it. stuff coming. Yeah. Episode 133 of the BSDNet program. Learn more about Alan's trip and Chris's. And, jeez, uh, that, that package stuff sounds really cool. And what was I think it was last week's, you can get, if you want to watch, an interview of Mr. Alan there. And, yeah. See what he's been up to. All right. Well, uh, so go grab that right now. It's about the midway point in the TechSnap program, and it'll be ready to go. Go get the HD version, and then you can just pick up right after TechSnap wraps up and get more Alan Jude in your face. But with the news all done, let's do the TechSnap feedback. Thanks for sending your emails to techsnap at jupiterbroadcasting.com or popping that contact link at the top of the JB website or starting with the thread in our subreddit at techsnap.reddit.com. And Al from the UK is our first emailer this work, this week, this work. Uh, and he has the subject line of TechSnap feedback. It's rather vague. But I open it up and behold, here is a question. He says, thanks for the great show. After listening to your show for over the last two years, and I think it's finally happened, Alan's convinced me to try FreeBSD. I really like the documentation in the FreeBSD handbook. It's really easy to follow. I currently have CentOS LAMP on a DigitalOcean droplet, which hosts a couple of WordPress sites. <clears throat> As I like to tinker, I was thinking I'd set up a new DigitalOcean droplet and set up a FAMP server moving the WordPress site over to it to expand my knowledge. I see there's a good couple of tutorials on how to do this on DigitalOcean's community site, but could Alan explain how ports and packages in FreeBSD work and how they can be updated, like maybe the yum update command works under CentOS to get security fixes? Right. So if you're using packages, uh, which are basically ports compiled by the FreeBSD project for you, they're basically the same as yum, except for the command is pkg instead of yum. And uh, you just do pkg upgrade, and it would upgrade everything for you. <clears throat> and they get uh, released like once a week, every Wednesday-ish. Or the build happens on Wednesday, so probably every Thursday. So, you know, every day before you start TechSnap, you can just run package upgrade, and it will upgrade all your stuff. Um, there's also the package audit command, which will list any known vulnerabilities that any of the software you have installed has. <clears throat> 
Oh, uh, Coop Mass points out that FreeBSD project has got enough machines now that they compile packages every two to three days. So even faster. Uh, so yeah, you could just run package upgrade and you get your upgrades and then package audit will let you know about any known vulnerabilities for which maybe a, an update hasn't been released yet or whatever so that you can decide what to do about that. Uh, but yeah, it works very much like yum except for package has slightly different command line semantics. Now, ports are slightly different. Uh, so ports are is basically the infrastructure that FreeBSD uses to build the packages. Uh, and basically it's this directory structure full of make files for about 24,000 different applications. And you can build the app, you know, Apache or whatever from that yourself. Uh, and the advantage you get there is that you can turn different options on and off at, that are build time options. And so, you know, if you're going to compile your own FFmpeg, you can say, oh, I would like to add these extra codecs that are not normally built in or whatever. Um, to update your copy of that, you would use um, PortSnap, it's called. And uh, I think there's a tutorial on that as well, but check it out in the handbook. So you use PortSnap, and it would update your copy of the ports tree to the latest one, and then you can just update the software. Again, you can use uh, package audit to get a list of things that you maybe want to upgrade, and then you just go into the port directory, you know, www slash nginx, or whatever you want to install, uh, www slash apache24, uh, and then make reinstall, and it will uh, download the newer version, compile it, and then replace your old version with the new version. Also, he was wondering how you get alerts when the disks in your uh, ZFS servers have issues. Uh, you can set up like smartmon tools or whatever like you would on linux or however you want to do it really yeah like there's i mean you could just get smart data but then there's also like the system logs too that you could set to. right uh so freebsd already sends you a daily stat system status and a daily security email uh and i think you have to turn it on but there's an option to include mm. the output of uh your zpool status on there if you're mm. using zfs nice and that will tell you if any of the disks are degraded okay so Mr. M writes in with our next one. He's got a two-part question. Part one, our <coughs> library consortium runs a hosted proprietary ILS, which is an integrated library system, on a Windows server. Each client connects with a server through a remote desktop session. At least one to two times a week, the print spooler crashes. In addition to not being able to print when this happens, it also no longer maps any shared drives. This causes a great deal of disruption on our daily workflow. We have upgraded the software versions of the ILS and migrated to a new physical server with no change. I'm convinced the problem is a software issue, Windows, or a server configuration problem, but even, even our paid tech support cannot come up with any viable solutions other than rebooting the server. Any ideas? Well, I could take that one <clears throat> because, yeah, it is a huge issue when you're doing remote desktop and uh, you're remoting into a Windows server. So a couple things you can do just to make sure uh, you are keeping it as simple as possible is make sure that the RDP client is not connecting remote printers at all. And ideally, what you want to do is try to use a generic driver, if possible. Keep it very simple, because remember, under Windows, printer drivers get loaded into the kernel. However, regular users don't have permission to load things into the kernel. And so it needs to be a, ge a generic driver that is already installed on the system by the administrator that is already loaded into the kernel, so that way when the users go to print, they'll just take, they can use the already loaded module. The way you do that is by having a universal print driver. The way I've done this in the past is I have a print server. Usually in the past, I did a Linux cup server. I found this to work the best, but whatever you want to use. That's where you install the specific printer model driver. You get that installed on that printer server. Then, on the systems that are hosting the remote desktop connections, you install the universal print driver there. Or... <clears throat> 
you know, uh, seriously, alternatively, just consider not hosting your printers on Windows servers. My solution, I, I am not joking, was I, I literally condensed uh, somewhere, I can't remember now because it's, it's been a very long time, somewhere between 17 and 22 Windows 2000 print servers. This is how long ago it was. Windows 2000 print servers. I condensed all of them. At, at, at a time, at the max, it was 22, to one Linux Cups print server. And I went generic print drivers across all of the terminal servers. And we went from, I had, to, I had, a, I had a script that ran on the, all the Windows print servers to reboot them. And the reason why we did so many Windows print servers is we found, with remote desktop in particular, that after a certain amount of printers and users, it just became a constant issue. So I did. We started. We started breaking them off onto separate servers. We set up batch scripts to reboot the print spooler service. Um, <clears throat> you know, you can do. You don't have to reboot the whole server. You can generally uh, do net stop the print spooler and net start the print spooler, and it'll restart the print spooler service. And you, I don't know why your network drives are getting disconnected. That might be something else. Uh, Anyway, so we would do a dispatch file to just restart the print spooler all the time, restart the print spooler, and then at night, reboot the servers uh, until I condensed it down to one cup server. And that was what I found to be the best. It's, it, is, it is a, I believe the print spooler is one of the most poorly designed pieces of software in Windows. And most of the time, you don't run up against it, <clears throat> you know, especially just doing a couple of printers here and there, you know, USB printer, a couple of network printers, no big deal. But when you've got 20, 30, 40, 60 people, or even 10 people trying to send print jobs to one machine, and maybe it has, in you know, some cases, five, six, seven different types of printers on them, uh, it, is a, it is just a disaster. And so it is a common problem with remote desktops to have this issue with Windows printing. So he has a second part. <clears throat> He says, I was able to convince the ILS to allow me to connect a Linux-based client to the Windows server through RDP. Everything worked flawlessly except for the printing. Even with all the correct Linux print drivers installed on the client and server, we could never get it to print. Is there a Linux uh, or other solution that will allow printing from a hosted server to a client through RDP? Well, there's your problem right there. Mr. M, you're using, you're using the most unreliable way to print. And I realize it's not your fault, but sending the print jobs back through the RDP client is... Think about think about what that crappy Windows print spooler service has to do. Yeah, you, you might you you have to get the print job to talk to a device that RDP is making it think is local, right? Because the print spooler doesn't know about sending print jobs over the network. So the RDP client and the Windows RDP service are faking it out, and the driver model isn't built for that. Uh, it's that's that's a disaster. What you need to do is you need to host their individual printers on a print server and then send the jobs to that print server and have it print locally. So what we would do in the past is we would have a local little mini print server on the LAN, and we would have the IP address of that print server installed on the remote, on the centralized print server, and they would print to that job. We don't use the RDP redirect. That just never works. Yeah. Um, um, here we have one printer. It connects directly to the network and not to any specific computer, and we just print to it from... Our Windows computers and our yeah. BSD computers. Yeah. And, uh, and, you know, there are ways to do it, like like I said, with generic drivers, or if you set everything to just use, like the HP LaserJet driver, the most basic yep. driver, it generally works. But, like, if you're but trying like, to go to, like, desk jets and stuff like that, what a freaking nightmare that becomes. But, uh, like, our student even managed to scan a document from our random cheap Samsung printer yeah. from PCBSD. That's amazing. With cops. Like, it's like... 
pretty that good. Is, that Couldn't is. Couldn't make really... it use the document feeder to scan multiple pages, but that's a different problem. <laughs> but you're getting closer every day. All right, so Rob writes in with a question I bet you might know the answer to, and I, I think we've actually, we might have talked about it, but it might have been off air. He says, hey, Chris and Alan, I was wondering if you heard anything about or have an opinion about OPN Sense. Am I saying that right? Or OpenSense? OpenSense. OpenSense, okay. A recent fork of PFSense. According to their wiki, the fork was motivated by the developer's unease about a lack of transparency in the PFSense project and a change in licensing since Netgate bought a majority share in its corporate backer. I don't follow PFSense closely, so I can't tell if this is a lot of FUD or if the project is really going through some sort of transformation that is negative in the freedom dimension. Hope you guys can shed some light. Thanks, and love the show. Um, it wasn't... <clears throat> So much that uh, there was some stuff and people reacted to it, but uh, OpenSense is, yeah, it's a fork of PFSense. Um, they're trying to do some things differently, so now people have a choice, but PFSense is still completely open, BSD and free and everything, so uh, probably a little bit of FUD there, but really it's nice to have the two different projects uh, and they're competing with each other and making both of them better. Yeah, that's a very good point. That's a very good point. Um, <clears throat> I still use PFSense, but, yeah. uh, you know, there's... So I know, do, uh, do you think it's worth keeping an eye is on? doing uh, so a lot of stuff with the internationalization. Like, there's a... You can get OpenSense in completely properly translated Japanese now. Uh, and I think German and Portuguese or something. Uh, so that's one of the things they're focusing on. Uh, but... They have, so have a different release model and a lot of different stuff. Okay. But. Uh, really quick follow-up to the question about the remote printing. Man, mm -hmm. I just would have loved to have been able to try this back in the day. I was using you know full-on PCs and servers to do all this stuff. Yep. Uh, the chat room just linked uh, – who was it in the chat room? Vertenduinda just linked a Linux printing using cups on the Raspberry Pi. So you could, you could <laughs> honestly use $35 computers and a free operating system and solve this problem if they just give you a little leeway. It might, so I'll link to that in the show notes by your question. That might help. That might just help. All right, so there you go. Open, open sense. Maybe I'll, something I'll keep an eye on. So thanks for sending that question. We would love to get your questions. Please go to Jupiter Broadcasting, click the contact link, and choose TechSnap from the dropdown, or start the thread in the subreddit at techsnap.reddit.com. The portion of this show that you just watched or listened to, it depends on your questions. It is fueled by your questions, so you got to send them in, or else we got nothing to talk about during this segment. Maybe we would just skip it one day. But we that hope that you'll send in your questions. So go ahead and do it. Any questions you might have, send them into the show, and we'll try to get them into the next week's episode. All right, Alan, with feedback all done, that means it's time for the TechSnap Roundup. Welcome to the TechSnap Roundup. Yeah, this is that crazy music means another roundup for stories that didn't fit at the top of the show. But we still wanted to give you some links to follow up on your own after the show. And some of these links came from our highly sophisticated and on top of the daily news subreddit at techsnap.reddit.com. Our first story came from me. <laughs> and I'm really looking forward to this because I've been considering for a few months maybe building a new machine. And there are elements of a NUC that I find appealing, but it's not quite powerful enough. Well, maybe that's all about to change. Today, mm -hmm. Intel Skull Canyon Nook, the most powerful game-ready mini PC ever, has been announced. Now, it's not shipping until, like, July. But it's yep. got a quad-core Skylake chip, Iris Pro 580 graphics, uh, and the ability to go up to 32 gigabytes of DDR4, and two M.2 drives in RAID 0 by default. Plus, it has, uh, I think it's a Thunderbolt connector. It can do an external video yes. card if you need more 
a yep. beefier video card. Yeah, they show here in this uh, PC World uh, article that we'll link in the show notes, they show the uh, Razer Core, which has a Radeon GPU inside of it, and they have it hooked up to the NUC, and they say it worked just fine. And so they were able to actually, they were able to game at 1080p, 30 frames per second with the, with the Iris graphics, but going to this, you were able to, you were able to get what you'd expect yep. using Thunderbolt 3. It's a pretty small looking machine. It's got this weird funky skull on it, so they're also going to offer one that doesn't have the weird funky skull on it. I remember when they had the, an optional sticker for the SSDs with that funky skull on it. I don't know what they, they're like, yeah, gamers like that kind of thing. Yeah. You know, it's, uh, look at this, Alan. This thing is literally <coughs> smaller than some of the set-top media streamer boxes, and it's a core oh, yeah, i7 yeah. in there. Um, if you notice on the f- picture of the front, one of the USB ports is yellow. Yeah. That's a standard from laptops. That's one that is still powered even when the NUC is powered off. Mm. Uh, it lets you charge right. things. Right, right. Like, uh, or, you know, if, if, you know, for me, our stereo system is actually powered by my knock in the living room and having it not go thunk, thunk every time you turn the knock on and off like yeah. useful the, I like you know it looks like it's designed to almost sit under your monitor it's so little it is just We're, yeah so like ours currently sits on the table that the TV sits on and it's just high enough that it's fine but if we had a slightly lower profile TV or something having it that much thinner but wider means that sitting on the table in front of the TV uh, wouldn't block the TV at all. If you could only have one computer, if you could only you know build one computer, would you go with something like a NUC for your next workstation, or would you still be compelled it would to want? It really wanna... depends. Like you know, I definitely like having the flexibility of being able to add and remove components and upgrade. Yeah, but these days, you know, you know if my main storage is on FreeNAS, yeah, and well, yeah, like my my desktop, the workstation I'm sitting here at has two 240 gig SSDs mirrored, so. The two M status slots or M.2s or whatever in that would, would cover that. Um, Plus, yeah. you have Thunderbolt if you want external storage as well. Right. But, you know, I don't really want that. Yeah. Um, yeah. I found that the sound options were slightly limited on my NUC, especially yeah. for my TV, but yeah. I have a USB. It's exactly it. Yeah. Creative Sound Blaster thing that powers my 5.1 system. So right. That's exactly that right. That kind of solves that. Rikai also yeah, points out they can mount also... to the back of your monitor using the Visa mounts. Yes. Uh, <laughs> the, my, I, I, I looked at doing that with my NUC, although my TV's so big, it's got the bigger Visa mounts for mm. like, 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 much bigger than the, uh, but yeah, it works great. Like, you know, you can mount it on the back of your 27-inch monitor or whatever. Uh, and yeah, it's great. So uh, maybe I'll, you never know. I, I got to decide yeah. between that or building a classic PC workstation with nice big graphics card inside and a couple of different discs, and that, that feels like maybe that's still the way to go. But I love the idea of a small, little, quiet, simple computer that just works. That also sounds yeah. Good. It's just you know, uh, well, it's only six hundred and fifty dollars or whatever. By the time you put RAM in it and yeah. everything, yeah. But that's uh, with an i seven quad core. But yeah, yeah, I agree. You're right. It is. It's. I'm gonna watch it. I'm not saying I'm doing anything. You know, there's no storage. So basically, it's only the case. Motherboard, power supply, and processor. Mm-hmm. Uh, kind of a bare bones bundle. And you could probably get a tower based one slightly cheaper than that. But also, mine didn't include like the power cable or something. Oh, really? It had the adapter, but not the part that yeah, went to the adapter. Intel's the not super good at this, I don't think. I, I've gotten some mixed results on their power adapters, too. and they've Because like, it, was, it was a standard laptop-ish one, so yeah. it was easy to get. Well, here, just, I got two NUCs. I took it out of the box, and it was like, well, son of a bitch. I got two NUCs within like a month, and uh, they were almost identical, but they had totally different vendor 
power adapters. So, like, they're just sourcing them from different people. I don't know what's going on there. So, Microsoft doesn't know what's going on either. In fact, they're help, they're asking for help from their partners. What happened? What's going on there? So, yeah, uh, Microsoft somehow had a giant backfire in their CRM and lost all the audit reports from certificate authorities that they used to decide who to trust in, you know, Windows no. Explorer Edge browser and everything. No. So, yeah, uh, Microsoft was incorrectly not trusting 147 root certificates because they lost their audit data on them. And then so they emailed the certificate authority saying, hey, uh, we're going to suspend you if you don't give us your latest audit report. Like, we sent it to you a while ago. You acknowledged it. It's like, yeah, but we lost it. So you have to send it again. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Good, good job deciding which CAs to trust there, Microsoft. That's all right. They probably just had a backup uh, on Azure, so I'm sure they're well, good. They had a, apparently, their backup was too old. Oh. <laughs> okay, good stuff. Good stuff. Read the story if you want more. It's That's good. Couldn't make it up. So, uh, you know what? Every now and then, we just want to give you a helpful resource in the roundup. TCP dump is amazing. You guys know that. But here's some really cool how to use TCP dump basics for different types of scenarios, like the case of the slow HTTP request, uh, and filtering packets, uh, looking a little bit at T-Shark, too. Uh, it's a great post. Yes, the, the best skill you can have with TCP dump is how to save it to a PCAP file that you can open in Wireshark. Wireshark, yeah. <laughs> Wireshark, like, I, I want a TCP dump on the router or the server or whatever, find out what the problem is. But when I want to analyze it and dig into the packets, I don't want to look at the hex dump. I want to yeah. look at it in the graphics on my yeah. desktop. Apply a filter there in Wireshark, and it's much better. So, Alan, you have a PDF linked up in the show notes. PDF warning, everybody. PDF warning. What you got here? A study from Rutgers University and Microsoft about what kills your hard drives. In a data center. Hmm. And their findings suggest that humidity is a bigger problem than temperature. GoDaddy also apparently involved and a few different universities. Yeah. So this is uh, for hyperscale data centers. We have lots of servers. Uh, huh. They compared traditional data center cooling to what's called free cooling, where you use air from outside. Like so Facebook on. we've talked about has it done in some places. Yes. Or, you know, it's quite popular in Canada because mm -hmm. it's cold here sometimes. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> And they found that humidity can have a higher impact on failure rate than temperature. So running your drives warmer but drier is probably better than keeping them cooler but not dealing with humidity. So those of us who have our drives out in the garage might take note of this. Depends how humid your garage is. It gets humid. It gets humid. <laughs> All right. Fine. I'm going to have to build a server area here, JB1. Fine. <laughs> or just run a dehumidifier. Hey, there you go. Yeah, let it get hot, actually. Let it get hot. Hmm. So they actually say heat's not so bad? Uh, well, heat will still kill the hard drives, too. It's just... Yeah. They compare the two and... and I'm looking like, at it now. I see that. We have the link to the full PDF in the show notes. Yes. Look at that. It's a good data to get from everybody. You ready for this one, Alan? This is going to solve everything. While the FBI doesn't want you to have encryption in your pocket... The U.S. Army wants to have encryption in the air. They're developing an encrypted radar waveform. Now Army researchers have developed an adaptable noise-encrypted wa radar waveform called Advanced Pulse Compression Noise, APCN. The technology combines aspects from both traditional and non-traditional radar systems and can be tuned in real time to allow, systems, uh, to allow system users to adjust radar performance depending on their surroundings. That's pretty neat, Alan. You like that? I think that's pretty cool. Yeah, they didn't really explain what it does. No, no but they make it sound like, uh, they basically make it sound like they're using this pulse compression, and, they're in, and, and they call it 
pulse compression noise, which kind of makes it sound like maybe they're injecting noise in there? Yeah, so I think um, either it's the radar pulse they're sending out is randomized so that it doesn't the other guy doesn't detect it as a regular radar beam, so it doesn't set off their ECM gear uh, and make it harder to tell where the radar is coming from, or it's more of a you encrypt the radar signal so that the receiving guy will only send a ping back if the encryption matches up, so that you know uh, most radar on like airplanes now, like like consumer airplanes. Uh, you know, the, the, the airport isn't sending out radar beams and they're bouncing off the airplanes and telling where the planes are. The planes have a transponder mm-hmm. that sends out a signal. Yeah. So I don't know if it's related to that or what. Hmm. That's a good question. Interesting. So this one, I'm hoping when the next part of the story drops, it doesn't affect me, but there's a high probability because American Express is warning customers about a third party provider's data getting breached. It's like an like a American yeah, Express merchant. The, in, well, I don't know if it's a merchant so much as like someone they use... I think if it's maybe for their travel rewards or something, some some service they provide their customers. I hope not. I hope it's not, you know, Costco and American Express. Right. I don't think that one so much. It's okay. more as someone who uh, MX gives their data to to uh, do something. Oh, with it. oh, okay, okay, okay. Yeah. Right. All right. Makes sense. Uh, like provide the travel rewards program or something. And it says like uh, yeah, and it says like your card number and whatnot has been potentially yes, breached. Uh, importantly, the breach happened in 2013. Right. So, you know, I imagine most people who had an Amex in 2013 have had the card expire and have a new one with a different expiry date now. Happened Although, on 2013. Why such a delay? We don't know. Yeah. <clears throat> okay. Uh, maybe it is because now the last card that was in that bundle is expired. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, yeah. It could be. All right. This one I thought was interesting we, because uh, there's something that we've mentioned from time to time on the show that's like, boy, if this happens, it could affect a lot of really important websites. And then we see it happening over and over again. Yeah. Uh, so a uh, new malvertising campaign has exposed tens of thousands of sites in the last 24 hours, including some big names. Uh, and, and it's spreading as well. It's spreading crypto ransomware. I got a couple of the names here that have been affected by this. And it, it went through their ad networks that they were using. Uh, this is according to Trend Micro. The new campaign started last week. Uh, it uses a toolkit that exploits Adobe Flash and Microsoft Silverlight and a lot of other uh, widely used pieces of software as well. Some of the biggest publishers in the business, including MSN.com, NewYorkTimes.com, BBC.com, AOL.com, Xf- uh, My.Xfinity.com, NFL.com, Realtor.com, TheWeatherNetwork.com, TheHill.com, Newsweek.com. Affected networks included those owned by Google. App Nexus, AOL, and Rubicon. Yeah, that's so like worst case scenario. Somebody went to a bunch of the big ad networks and bought from them uh, the ability to advertise on a bunch of these big sites and and dump malware on it. Uh, now all those sites are supposed to, all the ad networks are supposed to check and not let the stuff through, but apparently they disguised it well enough. Yeah, that uh, it got approved and sent out. I guess the malware is using TeslaCrypt, which is a ransomware malware, but I, I think it only affects Windows. What a disaster that was. Yeah, because hopefully yep. nobody in the audience got bit by that. So tell me about this. This sounds like somebody we should all probably say thanks to, the guy who keeps the world's clocks in sync. Uh, yes, yeah, so this one's uh, mostly a look inside uh, NIST, or the National Institute of mm-hmm. Time, Science and Technology. Or time, no, uh, time, but they guys. provide time.nist.gov, <laughs> yep. which is what the time server most people sync to. Yeah, National Institute and of Standards and Technology. 
Yes, that's what I mean. Uh, and so this is a look at the guy that set up the first set of time servers and the protocol for it and everything. Cool. Uh, and importantly talks about how NIST is uh, trying to beef up their infrastructure to deal with the fact that the Internet of Things uh, is going to cause all this more devices to be, uh, you know, especially since a lot of the things like a Raspberry Pi, it doesn't actually have a, uh, a chip in it to actually keep track of the, ta- the time. Oh, yeah, right, yeah. I didn't so really, you have didn't to realize set that the time via the network mm-hmm. every time you boot it up. Well, if you're going to have a huge number of Internet of Things devices that all need to know what time it is and keep that time in sync, that's a lot more load on the, the time servers across the world. Yeah. Uh, cool article. Very nice. So I had a post from um, Matthew Garrett, and uh, I thought this one was striking for two reasons. Number one, he stayed at a hotel, uh, and this is why it caught my attention, that instead of getting uh, using light switches, they pulled out the light switches and installed Android tablets. And he has a picture of it here with the uh, UK underscore bathroom isn't responding, do you want to close it prompt when the <laughs> software crashed. So that inspired him, speaking of TCP dump, to break out the old USB Ethernet adapter, set up a transparent bridge and used TCP dump to discover they were using a trivial protocol that didn't use authentication called mod uh, or MOD bus, MOD bus, or mod bus, depends on how you want to, I guess, which is a trivial protocol, had no authentication whatsoever, and TCP dump showed him that the traffic was being sent to 172.16.207.14. And then he noticed a Python uh, mod D bus module that was allowing him to control his lights. He could even turn on his TV and turn off his TV and even open and close his curtains from his laptop. Then something else struck his attention. He noticed that his IP address, the IP address that was talking to him, or his IP address was 172.16.207.14. Well, wait a minute. He's in room 714. He didn't know, would they? Yes, they would. Every room was IP'd that way. He was able to do that to any room he wanted to, because once he knew the room number and he knew the IP scheme, you could control the lights and do that to any. He could open up the curtains in their room in the morning. Wake up, everybody! <laughs> yeah, it's three in the morning. Open the curtains. Turn the lights on full. Oh, oh, please, 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 world, get this stuff figured out. Everybody, go out there and spread the word on the TechSnap program. We need to get people to wake up. All right, so we got a tweet here. Next link in the roundup. This is how fast a card skimmer can be installed at a point-of-sales terminal. So we're watching, one, two, three, boom, done. Wow, why the guy is buying? The guy sneaks up behind him and puts it on there. Just snaps right well, on like a Lego. Those two guys might have been working together. Oh, I suppose right? so. You see how the first guy's kind of blocking the yeah, cashier? Yeah, I see that. Okay. But you, yeah, boy, wow. That is really, yeah. it's a video that's linked in the show notes if you guys want to check that out. But yeah, it's, once you get, if you get something made for that model, it just snaps right over. They even have yeah. stickers on it to make it look like it's, like it's used. Uh, I put this last one here because I wanted to get your take on this. Uh, Hurricane Electric is launching a beta free DNS management service. Yes. And what I like about this is that I'm eligible for the free beta. <laughs> yeah, I bet you do I'm like a co-location that. and transit customer. So what is, uh, so this showed up in our TechSnap Reddit, so the audience also caught this one. What's kind of the big deal about Hurricane Electric doing this? Uh, well, because they're basically the good guys of the industry. <laughs> uh, they also have their own recursive resolver. Uh, if you don't want to use, say, OpenDNS, which is owned by Cisco, and Google's DNS, which is owned by Google, Hurricane Electric is like, well, we have one, and we're not doing it for the purpose of gathering information about you and selling it. We're doing it because DNS is important to the internet, and we provide this for free. Right. Uh, and yeah, and this, you know, they Hurricane Electric. You could tell from their website that they're not trying to sell you anything. <laughs> Basically, right? 
they're just one of the most connected backbones on the internet. And, you know, they provided free IPv6 forever. And, uh, yeah, this is a DNS, so you can host the DNS for your own domain there instead of relying on, say, the hosting from your, your, uh, mm-hmm. the place where you buy your domain. It's like no, nobody should be relying on their uh, registrar for DNS because it's always terrible. Well, that is really cool. I want to qualify one day. Maybe maybe one day. Uh, well, it'll be open to everybody soon. Cool. So links to everything we talked about in today's episode over at jupiterbroadcasting.com. Just look for episode 258 of the TechSnap program, and it's pretty much chronologically laid out. Alan, hats off to you, sir. Way to, way to soldier through the cold. Mm-hmm. I hope you're feeling better by next week. We do TechSnap Live. You could join us for 2.59 over at jblive.tv on Thursdays, beginning at 1 p.m. Pacific. There might be some pre-recording coming up in the somewhat distant future or close future, I guess. I did, yeah, I, think, I saw something on a calendar. Yeah, uh, because I'll be I'll be you know getting ready for Linux Fest and leaving to go pick up ham. So just check all of that stuff at jupiterbroadcasting.com/calendar. It's also super handy right now because time zone sucks and time and daylight savings sucks. We should just all be UTC and call it good. But whatever, I'm not going to get on that soapbox. It's the end of the show. The calendar page takes care of it. Jupiterbroadcasting.com/calendar. Don't forget we we feed on your emails over at jupiterbroadcasting.com slash contact and your links at techsnap.reddit.com. All right, everybody, thanks so much for tuning in this week's episode of TechSnap, and we'll see you right back here next week. 